text this morning is Jonah chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. It can be found on page 744 in the Bibles in the pews. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Joseph, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we seek the Lord's wisdom and understanding in knowing his word? Father God, we come to you this morning as sinners in need of your grace. And we thank you that you have shown your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we open this book, a very familiar book, God, would you instruct us even more into the depths of your marvelous grace. May we see Jesus even more clearly in this story of a, of a rebellious prophet, and may we be driven to worship you, the God of all grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I can remember the first time I went real snorkeling. It was in ninth grade with my family in Cozumel, Mexico. Now, I say real snorkeling because, as most kids did, I grew up using the mask in the swimming pool. I was very good at talking through the tube and blowing water through the tube, probably better than most others. But this time, the mask was rightly helping me observe the abundant life populating that crystal blue water. It was truly a sight to see. There were uh, fish, not ships, fish of all shapes and sizes and colors, The reef floor itself was bursting with diverse life. Even the innumerable sea urchins lining the floor were worth investigating, just to watch them move a subtle inch or two. It was certainly a testament to God's creativity and his beauty. Only he could come up with creatures and environments such as as this. But after some time in that 12-foot, maybe 13-foot deep water, the luster began to wear off a little bit. The colors seemed less impressive, almost familiar. The activity of the marine life itself also began to grow a little dull. I felt like I had seen all the ocean had to offer. It was old news. And it was at that moment when I noticed my two older siblings venturing a little bit further out, maybe 10 yards, 15 yards or so. Maybe they saw something and decided to follow after it. Or maybe they started to feel like I did, tired of the 12-foot pool, and were looking for something more. Whatever the case, I gladly, as a younger sibling, did what my older siblings do, and I ventured out and followed them. I joined in and took off in their direction towards what looked like an incline in the ocean floor. Much to my surprise, it wasn't simply an incline, it was a cliff. A sheer drop of at least 50 feet was on the other side of that incline. It marked the end of the beach and the beginning of the ocean. My familiar pool was replaced by the massive, intimidating open sea. And I quickly learned how foolish I was to think that I had plumbed the depths of the ocean in that 12-foot pool. 
There were new fish, different colors, and tons more life to explore over this cliff. I had in my 12-foot pool but skimmed the surface of the wonder and the beauty. The, familiar, the familiarity of that pool was just the tip of the iceberg. There was so much more for me to take in, to experience. As we begin what's going to be a, a, a few-week series in the book of Jonah, we can be guilty of coming to this book in a very similar way. It's the 12-foot pool that we're familiar with. The story is familiar. A big storm, a big fish, a runaway prophet. I got it. And for many of us, it was probably one of the first stories that we heard from the Bible. Even if we didn't grow up in the church, you're probably familiar with the story of Jonah. We know it like I knew that small pool. We think we have it covered. But the truth is, there is much more to this book than just the miraculous details. It goes far deeper than a guy surviving a storm, becoming fish bait, and finally then doing his job. This book plums the depths of God's grace. It throws us, sinners in need of grace, into the open waters of God's overwhelming compassion towards sinners, towards rebels. And when it comes to the grace of God, there is always room for us to understand, to grasp more of it. We will never plumb its depths, no matter how hard we try. His grace, as we're going to sing right before we take the Lord's Supper, is marvelous. It is astonishing. It is truly unbelievable. And even in these opening three verses, we cannot help but stand amazed at how God pours out his grace to rebels like you and I. So praise God that the depths of his grace far surpass the depths of our rebellion. Again, praise God the depths of his grace far surpass the depths of our rebellion. I'm going to be breaking the standard this morning by only having a two-point sermon. Take a deep breath. You'll be okay. And both these points will emphasize God's abundant grace towards rebels. First, we will see that God gives grace to the depraved depraved rebels. And second, we will see that God gives grace to the defiant, to defiant rebels. God gives grace to the depraved. God gives grace to the defiant. And at different points in our lives, I think we can safely identify with one or both of these categories. Some of you may even find yourselves in them here this morning. And the message for you, the message for all of us, the message of this book in these three verses is that God's grace is extended to all rebels everywhere. First, we begin with God gives grace to the depraved. Or we could say that God shows compassion even towards those who are bent towards evil. We see this clearly in God's plan for the people of Nineveh in verses 1 and 2. Where he tells Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This begs the question of where is Nineveh? What is this great city? For those of you who aren't familiar, it, is, it resided east of Israel. It was a large city, as the adjective great suggests. It included far more than just what was in the walls of Nineveh. It would have included also the areas surrounding it. The regions, the farmland, even some of the surrounding towns and villages all would have made up Nineveh. You could almost compare it to modern-day New York City. 
while technically New York City is built up of the five boroughs, it also includes parts of other parts of New York, parts of New Jersey, and parts of Connecticut. All of those areas make up New York City, which is why it is over, I think, 4,500 square feet of city. The way this describes Nineveh is very similar. It's a very large city populated area. It sat on the Tigris River as a major port and critical city for the Assyrian Empire. So much so that after Jonah wrote this book, that city would become the capital city of the empire. It would become the place of key significance. And if that was not enough, this city, Nineveh, was, with, was in the Assyrian Empire, which was the greatest threat to the northern kingdom of Israel. They sat on their eastern border. The Assyrian Empire was large enough, was powerful enough to defeat Israel. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that is what would end up happening in 722 B.C. But it wasn't simply that Nineveh was a great city, a large city, an important city. It was also a desperately wicked city. This is, he tells Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. The term evil can be disaster, it can be evil, it can be calamity. It will be used throughout the book of Jonah to refer to all three. Nineveh, if you will, was maybe the original or one of the original sin cities. It did not know God. It did not care that it didn't know God. It had no interest in who God was or what he had to say. But how bad was it? I mean, we have bad cities in our day, both in our country and in the wider world. How does Nineveh stack up against some of the cities that we think of? To find out, we need only to flip forward a few, a few pages to the book of Nahum for a glimpse into how rampant the evil was in Nineveh. Nahum, for those who don't know, was another Israelite prophet who was given a message to Nineveh. He came after Jonah with an oracle of judgment towards this city. And Nahum does not pull any punches. He paints a horrific picture of the depravity in Nineveh. It is a city and a people excelling in all types of evil. We might even say they were experts in depravity, if that is even a thing. We find that there's hatred and hostility towards God. In Nahum 1.1, he says, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. We find that there's unrelenting violence and cruelty. In 3.1 and 3, it says, Woe to the bloody city! awful of lies and plunder, no end to their prey, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. There's sexual immorality and idolatry. In that same chapter of verse 4, he said, and for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and, deadly, and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. And we see at the close of the book, there's widespread oppression and widespread suffering. When the prophet says, per upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. When it came to evil, Nineveh, Nineveh had it all. They had it covered. There was, this was not a place to vacation. This wasn't a place to go spend an evening for a nice dinner. This was a plague destroying everything that it touched. It was a foul stench, an affront to the holiness of God. And sadly, the trend of wicked and evil cities continues to this day. 
You can name a city anywhere on earth, and the same displays of depravity will be seen. Not even our city of Little Rock is free from such evils. Murder, both in and out of the womb, are tragically abounding. There's hostility towards God that flows out corporately, that flows out individually. There's sexual immorality of every kind that is both rampant and celebrated. And these are just a few examples. And sadly, our response is rarely the same as God's. It's not gracious compassion. Should we be grieved by it? Absolutely. Should we pray for it to end? Daily, we should be praying for it to end. Should we speak the truth against such evil? We should do so boldly and confidently. But we should also be moved like our God with compassion. These fellow image bearers desperately need God's grace. We are no better depraved sinners who have been redeemed by his grace. And we know this is the plight of all humanity. We are depraved by nature. Scripture tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked, that there is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks God. Our only hope is the grace of God. And we find that all of this evil from Nineveh does not go unnoticed. It was known. It demanded a response from the God of the universe. We find that the Lord is not simply the God of Israel. He is not merely there for his people to answer to. No, he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the Lord of the nations, even a nation as wicked as Nineveh. For Psalm 47, 8 tells us that God reigns over the nations. And in Psalm 67, 7, it says that the Lord is the one whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Therefore, all must answer to his rule and his authority, whether they realize it or not. At this point in time, Nineveh had no idea that the Lord was sending a prophet to proclaim his message to them. But the people of Nineveh would be held accountable for their unceasing wickedness. They would have to answer to the Lord. And in fact, this language in Jonah 1 verses 2 echoes that language that we find in Genesis 19 where Sodom and Gomorrah's evil rises up before the Lord. Where we find that the outcry of their sin is great, it's very grave, and it has, become, it has come before the Lord. This point is clear. There is no nation, there's no city, no tribe, no person who can escape God's notice. Their evil and their wickedness will ultimately go, will not ultimately go unnoticed. There will come a day when the bill must be paid. From Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that it came swiftly. Only Lot and his daughters escaped. And we would expect this to be the case for Nineveh. We would expect the story of fire and brimstone to rain down upon this wicked and depraved city. And yet that is not what God does. He holds back his immediate judgments. Yes, Nineveh warranted God's wrath. They were guilty at every point. But it was through Jonah who God had decided to extend his grace. Jonah would go to that depraved city and proclaim a message which we find out in chapter 2, was a message of repent. Judgment is coming. We see that God would show himself patient and compassionate even toward a depraved and wicked city like Nineveh. He would offer them mercy where judgment was deserved. And is this not what you and I have received from God through Christ? Were we not the ones who deserved wrath and judgment? 
and have we not been shown instead God's abundant grace and goodness? And is this not the same message that you and I as disciples of Jesus Christ are called then to bring to the nations? That our God is a God of grace. That our God is a God of compassion. That certainly judgment is coming. That there is a day when all mankind will stand before his judgment seat. But until that day, God's arms are open, extending grace to depraved sinners. He offers life and refuge to those who would turn from their depravity and instead turn to the safety and the refuge of Christ Jesus. And maybe this describes you this morning. You feel depraved. You sense that you are wicked, that you have turned. And so can I plead with you to do what God is calling Nineveh to do, to turn from your sin and rebellion and place your faith in the grace of God that is reaching out to you through Jesus Christ. If he was willing to show grace to these people in Nineveh, you are not beyond the reach of his grace. You are not too far gone. And brothers and sisters, for those of us who have received this grace, may we truly marvel in it, that we were once depraved, and yet now we have been brought near by his grace. This table that we will take up later will confirm that we are recipients of God's lavish and abundant grace. We worship our Savior who came for depraved sinners like us. And it is then out of that posture of worship that we seek to proclaim God's grace to the nations, starting first with those around us. So may we treasure his grace towards the depraved. May we proclaim his grace to the depraved. And may we put it on display for any and all to see. But in these first three verses, we not only see that God gives grace to the depraved, we also see that God gives grace to the defiant. God shows compassion even from those who turn from him and run in the opposite direction. We see this in the person and the character of Jonah. Like Nineveh, we wonder, who, who's Jonah? Who is this prophet who turns and runs? Most of our knowledge comes from this particular book. It reveals more about his character, and the only background it offers is that his father was Amittai. Don't really know much beyond that. But thankfully, there is one other place in the Old Testament where Jonah, the son of Amittai, is mentioned. It doesn't bring us too much more, but it gives us just a few more background details into who this Jonah is. In 2 Kings 14.25, it describes that a message was given to Jeroboam II, a wicked king of the northern tribe, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. Again, we are given Jonah's, Jonah's lineage along with his hometown. It's actually near the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Nazareth. It also confirmed that Jonah is a real prophet. He's a true prophet. The test of true prophets, as Moses gave the, the Israelites, was whether or not their word came to pass. He, he prophesied that their borders would be extended, and under Jeroboam, their borders were extended. He was a true and faithful prophet. He was a prophet of the Lord to whom the Lord had spoken on more than one occasion. And even this, the beginning of the book, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, is the standard formula for how the Lord would give his messages to his prophets. We see the books of Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, and the other prophets all start almost in a word-for-word statement such as that. Jonah had been given a divine task 
and he had a mission to accomplish. What was he told? He was told, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And here's where Jonah's path diverges a little bit from our normal prophets. Typically, the prophets were given a message to either write down or deliver somewhere within the borders of Israel. Even those who spoke out against the nations, there's cases of people delivering oracles like Nahum to other nations, but they never actually went to these nations. They wrote them down to be recorded, more for Israel's sake. Jonah, however, was told to go, and to go quickly. That a rise and go is almost immediate. Get your bags and leave. Take off. Get going. He wasn't to waste time. He had an important message to bring to the depraved people of Nineveh. And this is rather shocking. It was not a typical job for Israelite prophets to go to foreign cities and proclaim God's judgment against them. Sure, there were those who did that in Israel and their lives were threatened. Think of Elijah, think of Jeremiah. But at least they got to stay close to home. At least their uh, journey didn't require a long trip across the desert into unknown places, into unfamiliar places. Jonah was taking a journey to a people of renowned cruelty, renowned wickedness, and I doubt there was any prophet signing up for plan B in case Jonah said no. And what did Jonah do? He did what makes him famous. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah responded like my daughter does at her times of peak defiance doing the exact opposite of what I told her to do, sometimes while keeping eye contact and doing it with her one hand. Jonah heads west. He's supposed to go east. He boards a ship on a journey that was supposed to require camels because there's no water that he has to go across. And in case that's not enough, this ship is going all the way across the Mediterranean, likely to Spain. Jonah is told to go to modern-day northern Iraq, and he's headed for a trip to Spain. To quote John Calvin, Jonah could not have sinned more grievously than by forsaking God in having refused to obey his call. Jonah is not just saying no. He is saying, I refuse to serve the Lord. I refuse to bring this message to these people. And this is a very striking contrast, especially in the words of Amos, a contemporary of Jonah, ministering at the same time, who says about the Lord giving messages to his prophet, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? The expectation was Jonah received a message. He was a proven prophet. He would certainly go to Nineveh. He would grab his bags, he would head east, he would bring that message. That's why that but in verse 3 is as jarring as they come. It's supposed to say, so, so Jonah went to Nineveh. We're supposed to be left thinking, what in the world is Jonah doing? He's a prophet. He has a job to do. Why is he forsaking the commandments of the Lord? Truth is, we don't really get an answer until chapter 4, so we're kind of left with a, we don't really know. But we find that Jonah should have known better. He should have known that this flight would not end well. It would not get him what he wanted. 
He would also be familiar with David's words in Psalm 139 where he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. It is as if Jonah is putting these words to the test by going away from the presence of the Lord. He wants to see if he can prove them wrong. He seeks out the very place that Cain in Genesis 4 grieved in anguish over being sent away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is heading right for that direction. Tarshish is, figuratively speaking, the end of the world. Jonah is heading where he thinks the Lord cannot reach him. He thinks he is headed where the Lord cannot hear him. And while it is easy to laugh and to be perplexed and to wonder why would Jonah do this, the truth is Jonah is a picture of you and I in our moments of defiant sin against the Lord God. We do what Jonah did oftentimes on a daily basis. We know the commands of the Lord. We know what is good, what is right, and what is true. We know what he desires from us. And yet we respond like Jonah without right defiance. Sure, we may not pack up our bags and leave town, but we certainly convince ourselves that we can go somewhere where the Lord is not. We can go somewhere where he can't see us. And like spoiled and ignorant children, we think we are one step ahead of where God is. And where does it get us? At the very least, we end up in trouble. We know where the story of Jonah goes. He's going to end up in a storm and in the belly of a fish. I don't know if it gets much worse than that. So in a way, Jonah gets what he wants in getting away from the presence of the Lord. We find that that place is not a place we really want to be. And we find that it's actually a downward move. It's no accident that in verse 3, twice, it's very clear that Jonah went down. This movement will continue in Jonah, going down and down until he eventually reaches the bottom. Defiant rebellion moves us away from the Lord, and it moves us in the direction of death. If obeying the law means life, then it's natural that disobeying the law certainly means death. Jonah ran headlong towards death. And yet, God showed grace to Jonah. He could, have, he, could not have, he could have allowed Jonah, he could have stopped Jonah from breathing. At that moment of his defiance, the Lord could have put an end to Jonah. We could, have, we could be left with a story that is just Jonah 1, 1 through 3. And that's the end of the story. God would have been right to have Jonah stop there and not breathe another moment or take another step. Instead, he pursues Jonah, as we will see in the weeks to come. He goes after Jonah, his defiant servant. And it is here, only in these three verses, that we start to catch a glimpse of Jesus Christ, even in the book of Jonah. For like Jonah, Jesus was also a prophet from Nazareth, from the, near the Sea of Galilee. And he too was told to proclaim the message of repentance to a depraved people. He spent time with prostitutes. He spent time with tax collectors, with the demon-possessed, with brutal, wicked soldiers, and plenty of other depraved people. Because he was the physician who came to heal the sick. He was the redeemer who came to save the lost. But Jesus also proclaimed the message of God's grace and repentance to a defiant people. 
He engaged the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, the other religious bigwigs. These were the men of Israel who claimed to know the law and claimed to obey the law, but like Jonah, were running in the opposite direction. Their lips were speaking of the Lord, but their hearts were far from him. And it was Jesus Christ, the true and great prophet, who called defiant Israel back to God, back to covenant faithfulness, not merely external religion. Jesus was the true and faithful prophet of God who not only preached, but secured God's grace for rebels through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection. It is Jesus who succeeded where Jonah failed. And it is because of Christ, our true prophet, that depraved and defiant rebels like you and like I this morning can know, rest, and trust in the abundant grace of God. You and I are like Jonah more often than not. We defy the God who redeemed us. We foolishly choose the path that will ultimately lead to destruction. And yet God graciously keeps us from getting what we deserve. As Hebrew 12 tells us, like a father, he disciplines us to draw us back to himself. Instead of pouring out judgment on us for being selfish, ungrateful, and defiant children, he pursues us with his grace. God is continually gracious to us despite our defiance. What marvelous grace and what a wonderful Savior, as the hymn writer tells us. So may we daily turn in to him in repentance. May we cry out for his grace moment by moment. And again, if you are here this morning like Jonah, running as fast as you can, as far as possible from the presence of the Lord, can I encourage and plead with you to turn back? God is and he will be gracious to you. But for all of us, may the amazing grace of God that reaches to us even in the midst of our defiance renew in us a desire for obedience and for faithfulness. If he is constantly faithful to us in his grace, how could we not respond in faithful obedience to what he has called us to do? God is gracious. He shows grace to the defiant. The grace of God is not a 12-foot pool in the section of a beach. It isn't something that you and I can explore or fully grasp in a few days, in a few months, or even a few years, or even a lifetime. It is an open sea. It is vast. It is deep. You and I can merely scratch the surface of it, even with the help of the Holy Spirit working within us. We will spend the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of God's grace poured out upon us. But even in our limited and finite knowledge of God's grace, this is more than enough for us. It is enough to sustain us. It is enough to capture our affections. It is enough to warrant our obedience and trigger our worship. God has and continues to pour out his compassion upon depraved and defiant rebels like you and like me. May we continue to grow in our understanding of his grace. May our hearts be all the more inclined to worship him, to adore him for his marvelous grace. Praise God that the depths of his grace far surpass the depths of our rebellion. Let's pray. Father God, you are a gracious God. We are not deserving of your grace. We are ill-deserving of it. And God, like you showed to the Ninevites, like you showed to Jonah, 
you are gracious in abundant ways towards the depraved and towards the defiant. Forgive us for where we have continued in our depravity, where we have continued in our defiance, in our defiance. Call us back to your Son through your Spirit. Work within us a desire to know your grace, to praise you for your grace, to give you glory and praise. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.